Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I'm Diane Sandberg, your host for this episode, and it's my pleasure to welcome Sue Abderholden. I'll be talking with Sue about the work of the Minnesota Chapter for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, an organization she has led for 20 years. Sue's contributions have been widely recognized, including receiving the 2020 Esther Wattenberg Policy Award and being named by Minnesota Physician as one of the state's most influential healthcare leaders. Sue, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation today. Thanks for inviting me. You've devoted your career to changing laws and attitudes that affect people with disabilities and their families, certainly at NAMI and in other roles and organizations. And what do you feel are some of the most meaningful changes you've been able to bring about? Well, I think there's a couple. One is actually um, closing the institutions largely for people with developmental disabilities, making sure we have community-based services, early intervention, starting at birth when you discover a child has a disability. I could actually talk about a whole lot of things. I was on the White House lawn for the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was hugely impactful. What would you say is one that you were able to work with that impacted the most people positively? You know, back in around 2007, with the large coalition, we actually passed, um, it was then called the Minnesota Mental Health Action Group. And it really, the changes that were put in that package, I think, really created positive changes for our mental health system. So if we look at how our mental health system has been funded over time, largely it's been state and local grants. Well, you can't build a system on state and local grants. And so what that what happened then is that we moved most of the mental health services, so assertive communicative treatment teams, adult rehab mental health services, children's therapeutic services and supports, those in-home services to Medicaid and Minnesota Care. So that it really became a healthcare service funded by health insurance versus a county or state grant. And I think that was a huge shift. We also did what I think is kind of the next best thing to slice bread is it's called schooling to mental health. And so the grant dollars actually go to a community mental health provider who co-locates in the school. So they see the child in their own milieu, but because they're a healthcare center, right? A mental health center, they follow HIPAA. They can build private and public insurance. And then the grant money was used to pay for children who are uninsured or underinsured and for those services that you can't bill for. So collaborating with the teacher, for example, on how to support the child in the classroom. And the reason I think it's so impactful is that for many parents, they couldn't take off of work once a week for 20 weeks, right, to bring their child to therapy. And so we heard of many families who lost their jobs or the treatment plans weren't completed right? Um, And also families not knowing how to navigate. And so this really, I thought, was hugely popular um, program right now. And um, the program isn't about 
60% of school buildings in Minnesota. So we're making progress. But even in the buildings that's in, you pretty much get a waiting list by November. So clearly there's a huge need there. And what first got you started in a career in mental health advocacy? One of those things that I think many um, women would relate to is when I graduated from college, I actually uh, wanted to go to medical school, did fine in college and things like that, and did research at what was then Ramsey County Hospital um, during the summers. And when I went for my first interview at the medical school, they said, well, do you plan to get married? And I said, well, I certainly hope to someday. And they said, well, then you're not serious. And so at the second interview, they asked me the same question. I was like, okay, now I know the answer. And so I said, no. And they said, what's wrong with you? And what happened is that the, um, the head of the research lab, who was a surgeon, said, you know, what you should do is go work with children with disabilities, and then you'll get in. I'm like, okay. So I went and applied, and it was at that time kind of the state-of-the-art um, group home, about 44 children who would have otherwise ended up in the institution. And I never looked back. I'm still in contact with some of those parents. It had a profound impact on me. I loved working with the children, but I also saw how hard it was for families to place their children out of the home because there were no in-home services. So soon after that, I went and got my master's in public health administration and then worked for a short period of time at the health department until I ended up at ARC. And so from there, I really just focused on disability and mental health issues. In my own family, I have loved ones who live with anxiety and depression, so um, have also experienced it firsthand as a family member. And continuing to build on all the changes that you've been able to make thus far, what do you expect NAMI to focus on in the upcoming years? What's, what's your goal for the future there? So a big one is workforce. Um, we did pass some significant legislation this year to try to create a more culturally diverse and informed workforce. Not all of the pieces passed, and so we want to come back to that. But we found that about half of the people who graduate you know, from graduate school in these mental health professions don't go on to become licensed. And when we looked at what the barriers were, you often have to do you know, like 4,000 hours of you know, a practicum, right? And often you're not paid to do those hours, and you have to be supervised, and you have to pay for the supervision. And then we have to look at our licensing exams. Are they culturally informed as well? And so are people missing the exam, passing the exam by a few points because it's really geared towards, you know, kind of a, a white middle-income culture, or are we really looking at everything? So that will continue to be a huge piece for us. We also really need to address children's mental health. The pandemic has had such a negative impact, frankly, on everyone's mental health, but particularly children. And just going back to school isn't going to fix that. They're not going to miraculously be okay. They went through a very traumatic experience in their life. Um, and we know that particularly, you know, while we were all in the same ocean, we were not in the same boats. And so people from, you know, BIPOC communities had higher rates of catching COVID, higher hospitalizations, higher deaths. And then we have the attacks on Asian Americans, blaming them for um, COVID and so we also have a lot more trauma experienced in the BIPOC communities. And so I'm really worried. We have kids boarding in emergency rooms. We don't have enough residential treatment. That workforce shortages are huge to do in-home services and residential treatment. So I'm worried, honestly, about the mental health of our kids. And we need to do more to build up that system and to build on what we have. We don't necessarily need new shiny things. We need to make sure that what we have is fully funded and works. 
With all of those obstacles, do you ever feel discouraged in your work? Pretty rarely. I had a wonderful mentor back when I worked at ARC, Betty Hubbard, um, who was from St. Paul, who was an amazing woman. She has since passed away. But she always told me when you are looking ahead and seeing about how much work you have to do, you need to look behind you and see how far you've come. And so when I do feel discouraged about, you know, whether it's related to building our mental health crisis teams, addressing police training, the homelessness, you know, dual diagnosis, it can, it can feel overwhelming. But then when I look behind me and I think, you know, I know what the institutions looked like in 1973 and they were horrible places. I know what few services we had. We didn't have mental health parity. I mean, there were a whole lot of things that we didn't have. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. But I look behind me and I see that we've come a long way. Friends for a Nonviolent World's purpose is to champion nonviolence and to promote the dignity of every human being. Do you see any overlaps between FNVW's mission and what NAMI is trying to accomplish? Absolutely. You know, I think that I don't like to use the word stigma because really what people are worried about is discrimination. People with mental illnesses don't have, aren't treated, frankly, with dignity and respect in our communities. Um, Some examples include, what are the slang words for mental illness? We can all name them off, right? Crazy, psycho, nuts. What are the slang words for heart disease or cancer? They don't exist. And so we really, we talk about mental illness in a different way than we do other healthcare conditions. Ask anyone who's hospitalized in a psych unit, did they ever get a get well card? And they're going to say no. Do employers know what an accommodation is for mental illness? Most don't have any idea of what that would be. They understand if someone is using a wheelchair, they're going to have to get a ramp. They might have to raise up the desk, right? But so what do you do if someone is hearing voices? What's the accommodation for that? But there are. Also, you know, we call it the no hot dish illness, which is a term I learned when I came to Minnesota. Families don't get food brought to them when they have a loved one who's hospitalized. If you've ever tried to call in to a psych unit, do you know how hard it is? There are no phones in people's rooms. So you have to hope that someone, another patient in the main area, picks up the phone and gets it to your loved one. Now, when you're sitting there, right, isolated and feeling alone and scared, and you can't even connect with your friends and family, So I I think there are similarities. We need to be treating people with dignity and respect. We need to make sure that they get those same kinds of, you know, informal supports that you get for any other illness. Absolutely. I hadn't realized that it was that difficult even to make a simple connection, especially at a time in your life when you think you would need those connections the most. Absolutely. You also mentioned that there's the, uh, the closing of large state facilities and A lot of research shows kind of a rising population of people with mental illnesses who are now incarcerated. Do you see a connection between the closing of those facilities and kind of the shifting of people over into prisons instead? So I don't see it related to the closing of the institutions. I see it related to the not funding community services. The institutions were a problem. They absolutely had to be closed. And if you listen to Uh, President Kennedy's speech about why we needed to close them, he said, basically, the only firm hope of release is when you died. The only way you got out of the institution is if you died. And he talked about the crowding and the lack of staffing, nothing against the people who work there, but they were not good places to be. They simply weren't. 
what we can blame President Reagan for is not funding community services and taking the bill that President Kennedy signed into law to build a community mental health system and gutting it and turning it into a block grant out to the states with few strings attached. And so I, I bristle a little bit when people say the problem is we close the institutions. It's not. The problem is we didn't fund the community services, which, were, which are continued to be really needed. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Friends for a Nonviolent World, one of our projects is the Alternative to Violence Project. And it's a presence in Minnesota prisons where there are significant number of people with mental illnesses. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that NAMI does with those populations? What we really try to look at is, one, prevention. So how can we prevent people from entering the criminal justice system from the beginning, right? Sometimes when I've talked to sheriffs, they're like, you know, the problem is we have all these people with mental illnesses in the jails. And I said, well, who brought them there? Why were they brought to the jails? And I, and I think sometimes we have to really just take a step back and think about that. Now, certainly we have to build up our community mental health system, right? And provide early intervention, you know, make sure people can get services right away as soon as they need them and not have to wait for three months and things like that. And provide appropriate intensive services, especially for people with schizophrenia or, you know, the initial mood disorders like bipolar disorder. But then we have to think, so what's our response when someone's in crisis? And certainly sometimes we need a police response, but we also need mobile mental health crisis teams, which we have all 87 counties in Minnesota covered by mobile mental health crisis teams, but they aren't funded at the same level as other first responders like police or fire EMTs. So they can't respond to everything. And then if police do pick people up, right, and they make the decision about bringing them to jail or bringing them to the emergency room, when it's clearly a mental health crisis, they should be brought to the emergency room. And the emergency room is where we all go, right, when we have a health issue that we're not sure of where we need, but it's a good place to get assessed. And we have some hospitals that have what are called empath units or psychiatric ERs. Those are great places because they're quieter. You know, you don't need all the medical equipment, right? You just need kind of a quiet place to kind of regroup. And for some people, they'll go to inpatient. And for some other people, they could go to crisis homes, which we have in Minnesota. But when people end up in the jail, then we want to make sure that we have good standards, which actually there was just a bill passed this last session to really look at healthcare and mental health standards in our jails. We want to make sure that if someone dies by suicide in the jail, that they do a really deep review about how that happened and how it could have been stopped. We want to make sure that, you know, some people in jails, they're only there for a day or two. But if you have a serious mental illness, more likely you're going to be there longer. And so what's happening to them while they're there? Are they in isolation? Are they able to access their medications? Are they being provided therapy? You know, all those different things. And in the prison, it's the same thing. Do they have access to the appropriate medications? Do they have access to therapy and supports? peer specialist is a really important piece. So you can talk to someone else who's kind of been there, done that, which is also really helpful. And then really, um, and we passed this bill a couple of years ago to really restrict the use of solitary confinement, because that does have a very negative impact on people's mental health. We finally got the first data report and there's a lot of work yet to be done, but if you don't have the data, you can't measure your success and your change. And so we're just thankful that we finally have a baseline that we can really look at But it was a lot of younger people under the age of 26 who were put in solitary confinement. And I'm sorry, but your brain doesn't finish developing until around 26. And so to put those young brains, frankly, in isolation like that could be very, very harmful to them. The thing with NAMI is because we look at so many broad issues, we know there's just 
you know, not one thing that we can do to fix it. So we kind of try to look holistically in terms of the whole spectrum from calling 911 to begin with all the way to making sure that when someone with a mental illness leaves prison, that there's good discharge plan back into the community. Tell me more about NAMI's work with the police and kind of what your organization does to minimize the risks that can be involved with encounters between people who are suffering from a mental health episode and police officers. So this is always a hard one because we do know that when we look at who's been killed by police, it is a large percentage, um, someone with a mental illness, even more so if you have a mental illness from the BIPOC community. We do want to make sure that police have good training. Now, CIT, crisis intervention team training, is kind of the gold standard, but it's 40 hours. And so not only does the police department have to pay for someone to attend the training, but they have to pay for the replacement. So we tend to see larger police departments do this, like Minneapolis and St. Paul, but some of the smaller ones don't because it it just costs them too much. We were worried while police in Minnesota were required to have some training around de-escalation of mental illness, we didn't know who was doing the training. We didn't know if the training was evaluated. And so there was legislation passed both in 20 and 21 that will look a little bit more critically at that. In 20, we actually kind of listed out all the different types of training related to mental illness that they needed to cover within their kind of continuing education cycle. But this last time, we also wanted to make sure that we knew who was doing the training and that we evaluated it. So, for example, if you have an officer who um, unfortunately kills someone in a mental health crisis, can we go back and look at what kind of training they had? Can we go back and look at who delivered the training so that we can really kind of close that loop to know what really is the best training for people to have? Now, I know you can't always predict things. Um, Suicide by cop is a real thing, although a very, very small percentage People are entering difficult situations where you're not sure exactly what's going on. One thing we do know is that if it all happens very fast, that de-escalation techniques most likely were not used because going slow, giving the person time, all of that is really important to de-escalating a situation. And why is it so important to go slow? You know, when someone is in crisis, whether they're hearing voices, maybe they're manic, you know, they're, they're upset, right? And so if you come in, and you're talking loud, and you're moving fast, you're just further agitating the person. So when you slow everything down, you make sure there's not a crowd of people, you turn the radio off or the lights down low, you know, try to decrease the stimuli that's going on. You give the person an opportunity to make a decision, right? So do you want the lights on or off? Do you want me to sit here or there? Would you like water? When, when someone can start making a decision when they're in crisis, they start having control over their situation. That's not something that's going to happen quickly. Um, trying to create a little bit of a relationship with the person in crisis so that they kind of start trusting you as well is important to de-escalating the situation. You can't do that in two or three minutes, right? So you just need to kind of wait, be calm, be empathetic especially if they're not hurting someone else and oftentimes they're alone. So if you go fast, you miss the opportunity to help them get calm. Incidents that go well aren't usually the kind of things that we see on TV or read about in the paper. Do you have any examples of an incident that was handled really well by police? And then on the flip side, do you have any specific incidents that you can point to where the interaction did not go as well? There are lots of good 
experiences that people have with police in terms of de-escalation and getting people to the help that they need. I know that just even a couple of years ago, Duluth actually put something up and it was an officer tracking someone down from uh, jumping from a structure. They wanted to take their own life. And so they were able to intercept there. And we know of situations where they just waited the person out and the person finally you know, put the gun down and came out and was able to be brought to the hospital. And we've had situations where someone was going to set themselves on fire and the CIT trained officers were able to get the person not to harm themselves. It's kind of one of those things that happen all the time, but officers don't talk a lot about it unless they're doing CIT training, right? And, sh- and sharing those examples, but it can really work. Absolutely. Well, I think we have a lot in this last year, honestly, whether it was due to racism or a mental health crisis or whatever, they certainly exist. And we've had families who have lost loved ones um, to the police and Many of them have said it just all happened really quickly. We had a family who testified at the Capitol about it. And, you know, I think if they had slowed down, given the person some, you know, space and grace, that it could have been resolved well. It's, it's hard for me to put myself in a police officer's shoes because I'm not a police officer, but I have certainly dealt with situations where someone was in a mental health crisis and trying to figure out how to help them. Yeah, it it is always hard to anticipate how you will think until you're in this situation. Talk about some of the misperceptions of the mentally ill that NAMI is working to dispel. One of the things is people with mental illness are not violent. Only 4% of the violent crimes are committed by someone with a serious mental illness. You know, just because someone's depressed doesn't mean they shoot up people at a concert, right? I mean, you know, that just doesn't connect. Is there anything about Minnesota specifically? that makes your work unique as opposed to the East, the West Coast, or maybe in the South? I think what probably makes us a little bit more unique is workforce shortages. I mean, you have a lot more psychiatrists on the East and West Coast than you do in middle middle America. Um, So that makes it, frankly, difficult. Otherwise, I think, you know, because I talked to NAMI executive directors across the country, everyone faces barriers. Everyone faces negative public attitudes and everyone faces problems in terms of accessing the right level of care, especially if you have a serious mental illness. I'm I'm happy just to stay in Minnesota and deal with our own problems. What would you encourage our listeners to do to better support people with mental illness? I think a big thing that people can do is just to reach out. You know, when you're really struggling with, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, you can't expect them to reach out. So we need to, in a sense, almost reach in to support them and to see how they're doing. And there can be basic things. You know, if you're feeling pretty overwhelmed and depressed, making a meal is very low on your list of things to do or even getting to the grocery store. And so having someone bring a nutritious meal can be helpful. Taking a walk with someone. When you take a walk, right, you're moving, which gets the endorphins going in your brain, which can be really helpful. So that's something that you can do send a card, you know, show up at the hospital, all of those things. But the other thing I would really add is that we are, we consider ourselves a movement really trying to create change and we need everyone to help us do that. So writing to your elected officials about fundamental health system, we know what works. Let's make sure that mental health parity is enforced. So people aren't being denied access to the treatment that they need. All of that is actually really important. So On an individual level, support people that you know, but on a more kind of global effort, 
community-wide effort, you know, please help us change these laws and get funding. Is there anything else that you'd like us to know about NAMI or about any issues related to mental health? I think one of the issues that I just want to mention is that often people say, well, there's nothing that really works. You know, there's not good treatment. Um, The medications are awful. But what we do know is that a lot of people with mental illness actually recover and they go on to live full lives. And for some people, they might just have one hospitalization, maybe one run in with, you know, police and never have it again. And so we need to kind of remember that, that people, we might see people at the worst, but people do really get better. And there are some really fantastic programs. One of them is called First Episode of Psychosis Programs. So the way that we basically treat schizophrenia is, you know, maybe someone gets hospitalized and gets some medicine and that's it. Well, this is one of the most disabling conditions in the world. You wouldn't, you know, if you went to your doctor and they said you had cancer, they wouldn't say come back when you had stage four. But that's exactly what we do on issues like schizophrenia. We don't do anything that's intensive. We wait until they get so sick that they get committed, right? Or they end up in jail or prison. And so what the FEP programs do is really provide intensive services right away to that young person who's experiencing their first episode of psychosis. So not only do they get medication, it'll be a lower dose because it's early on, right? We're not waiting. They get therapy, they get cognitive remediation. So working on the computer with, you know, memory and things like that. They get into peer-led support groups, so they know they're not alone. The family gets education and support as well. And there's a person on that team who helps the young person get back to work or to school. So the trajectory of their life doesn't change greatly. And it works. And I think what I'm particularly frustrated about, it's been researched by NIMH. We have programs around the world. We have four in Minnesota. We need at least eight. And when we know that we can actually really help someone with this very serious illness, and we don't fund it, I think is immoral. And so I get frustrated sometimes when people say, well, it doesn't work. We have things that work, but we don't fully fund them. All right. Well, thank you for your time today, Sue. I appreciate it. I think the only thing I would add is that um, if someone you know has a loved one with a mental illness, know that NAMI has free classes um, to help you figure out you know, how to help your loved one what are some strategies that you can use? We also have peer-led support groups. So ones for people with mental illness and for family members. And as we all know, talking to someone who's been there, done that, it can be very helpful. And we do all the suicide prevention classes as well. And we have a helpline. We take over 4,000 calls a year from people who are trying to navigate the mental health system. So I don't want anyone to think that they have to go through this alone. They can connect with us and we'll make sure that they're walking on this journey with someone. Thank you. No, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Today's guest has been Sue Abderholden, Executive Director of the Minnesota Chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Be sure to check the program notes for additional information and resources. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.